On Wednesday, Zimbabweans will vote in presidential and parliamentary elections. Though few Zimbabweans have reason to be happy with the current state of their country, it is likely that fewer Zimbabweans still will cast their ballot in either hope or expectation of much changing. The same party, ZANU-PF, has governed Zimbabwe since independence in 1980 and in recent decades especially has grown corrupt, inept and authoritarian. The current president, Emerson Mnangagwa, an 80-year-old former militant turned ZANU-PF careerist, is a former ally of Robert Mugabe, who liberated Zimbabwe, then looted and wrecked it. Mnangagwa's own stint as chief of Zimbabwe's intelligence service is rarely recalled without a shudder. Ten rival candidates are seeking to displace Mnangagwa as president. Of these, only one is seen as a serious contender. Nelson Chamisa, a 45-year-old MP, now with opposition party the Citizens' Coalition for Change. Chamisa lost the previous presidential election to Mnangagwa in 2018, an election which many believed then and believe now to have been somewhat lacking on the freeness and fairness fronts. On the face of it, Mnangagwa does not appear to have much of a record to campaign on. Zimbabwe's economy is in ruins, corruption is endemic, dissent is suppressed. However, the combination of sentimental loyalty to the ZANU-PF brand and certain steps that may be taken to guarantee a result could well combine to return him. From where, then, do ZANU-PF's opponents find the optimism necessary to keep going? How can they persuade undeniable numbers of Zimbabweans that it doesn't have to be like this? And what kind of country could a competently governed Zimbabwe be? This is The Foreign Desk. They've been experiencing ZANU-PF rule now for 43 years, dilapidated infrastructure, dysfunctional public health facilities, schools that no longer function, hunger... And so they're also fed up and ready for change. My goal in running is to change the country domestically and its international policy from where Zimbabwe is and where it needs to go is a very simple process. But we have the wrong people sitting in the wrong seats on the wrong bus. On the ground, the people are exhausted from the political conversation that never seems to end in the country. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Later in the show, we'll hear from the Citizens' Coalition for Change spokesperson and someone who was at one point a candidate in this presidential election and Monocle Radio's own Georgina Godwin. But joining me first from Harare is Hopewell Chinono, a Zimbabwean journalist and documentary maker. Hopewell, first of all, what has been your sense of the kind of atmosphere in which this election campaign has been conducted, especially for journalists? How easy has it been to cover this campaign? Well, covering the 2023 Zimbabwean election has not been easy at all, both for local and international journalists, because where the opposition is supposed to hold its own meetings. Most of the times they were being stopped. Each time journalists go to these meetings, which are then stopped by the police, you are exposed to the spectra of violence because the police in Zimbabwe, they enforce their orders through violence, button sticks, sometimes dogs, Sometimes they use uh, those uh, big water trucks. So it has not been easy at all. For international journalists, the problem has been getting permits 
the election is taking place in eight days time and the majority of international journalists have not been cleared yet by the government of Zimbabwe. So one would imagine that covering an election as a journalist requires you to be on the ground for maybe two weeks, seeing what's going on, taking the temperature, the environment, and seeing how parties are campaigning. But because the government has deliberately put them at bay, it means they might end up being allowed to come maybe a day or two before election and they won't see much. They'll miss much of the action, like how the billboards for other political parties have been banned by ZANU-PF thugs, how opposition supporters have been beaten up, how some have died. Another one was stoned a week and a half ago and he died. So all those things, one would have imagined that the international media would want to capture that and they should be capturing that, but they are not able to do so because of the law, which says that they are supposed to be licensed by the government before they come from their home country. I mean, that all sounds depressingly like it might be a partial answer to what I guess is one of the key questions, which is how much faith can anybody in Zimbabwe have that this election is going to be, well, all the things an election is supposed to be, free, fair, transparent and peaceful? Well, I think the three key areas of an election that people look at is the fairness, the freeness of that election and the credibility. And all these are absent from the current process this far. So, for instance, the opposition party has gone to court demanding the voters' roll, the updated voters' roll. They have not been given the updated voters' roll eight days before the election. Most governments across the continent in Africa rig elections through the voters' roll. So you don't know who's on the voters' roll and who's not. And on the day of uh, election, results are just thrown up there because you didn't know who was there. You can't really argue, and that's why they are doing that. They went to court yesterday, and a high court judge said that there was no agents in hearing this case. One would imagine that there's nothing more urgent than a court application demanding a voter's role nine days before an election. But that takes us to the issue of a captured judiciary Most of the rulings that have been made by the judiciary were dubious and lawyers both in Zimbabwe and outside were saying that and are still saying that the Zimbabwean judiciary is abusing its role as an arbiter and it's not following the law. So, for instance, the issue of the voters' role, since the past three months, the opposition has been going to court and the courts have been saying, it's not really an important issue. They don't have to get the voters roll at that point in time. And yet the constitution of the country clearly states that any citizen can have access to the voters roll. If we consider the person of President Emerson Manangagwa, is there any chance at all that he does not win this election? And I grant that win may have inverted commas around it. I think in a world where everything is based on logic, President Mnangawa would not remotely win this election because his five years in government have been a disaster. He has failed to deliver on almost all his election promises from 2018. And the economy is now worse than what it was when he took over after the coup, which removed Robert Mugabe, who was one of the worst dictators But nobody thought that President Mnangagwa would be worse than Robert Mugabe 
in fact, we jumped out of the pan into a fire. Zimbabwe has got the highest inflation in the world at the moment. Zimbabweans do not have access to the basic necessities of life. Uh, so there is no way such a person as President Mnangawa would win an election in an economy uh, which has collapsed and in a country where 95% of that country's potential job workforce is out of work. And that's the reality in Zimbabwe at the present moment. So his chances of winning an election which is remotely free, fair and credible are next to nil. I mean, he does still have some sort of constituency, though, right? Where do you see the divides in this election between people who would vote for Nelson Chamisa and people who would stick with President Manangagwa? Is it geographical? Is it generational? Is it a city versus country or old versus young kind of thing? Or is it maybe more complicated than that? It's complicated than that because the ordinary citizens in the urban areas have got freedom and latitude to make political decisions during an election without the specter of violence and intimidation. Unlike the rural folk who are mainly old and saw the war for liberation struggle. And each time ZANU-PF goes to the rural areas, it reminds them of the war of liberation struggle and say that if you don't vote for ZANU-PF, the war will come back. And that instills a chilling effect in rural folk. They still have flashbacks from 2008, where over 300 Zimbabweans in the rural side or countryside of the country were killed. Some had their hands chopped off. And unfortunately, those flashbacks make it very difficult for the opposition to make inroads, especially in a country where most of the poor survive through subsidies which are funded by governments and donor agents. And all these subsidies, they come through the government of Zimbabwe. And each time people are thought of wanting to vote for change, they are reminded that if you vote for anyone else in your area who is not ZANU-PF, you will not get food, which is a subsidy that comes through government. You won't get maize meal. You won't get maize seed, you won't get fertilizers, which they get through the government. Despite those strong arm tactics and the unimpressive record and the likelihood that this election will be other than fair that you have outlined. President Manangagwa has been going through the motions of campaigning. Just finally then, what is his pitch? Given that so little, if anything, has improved in Zimbabwe since Robert Mugabe was forced out of office, what is the case President Manangagwa is making? Why is he saying people should vote to re-elect him? Well, he's running on a liberation struggle card. He's saying we are the party that brought independence to Zimbabwe. You should vote for us. We are the party that renovated a road built by the colonial government, the Arare to Bedbridge Road. You should vote for us. We've drilled balls for you. That's his speech. And it's a very poor pitch because people cannot vote for you because you drilled a ball for them or because you... Uh, refurbished a road which was built by the colonial government in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, He has not provided jobs. He's not talking about jobs. He has not fixed the hospital system. Uh, He's not talking about healthcare. He's not talking about proper infrastructure development because very little has been done. Uh, It has all been uh, refurbishment of the airport, international airport, 
which very few Zimbabweans use, and a lot of people have never been to that airport. So for you to ask them to vote for you on the basis of something that you don't even use when your kids are out of work, when you don't have access to healthcare, when, when your kids do not even have an opportunity to get piecework, to get temporary work, it's very difficult to sell. It's a hard sell, but that's what he's selling. And because of that, I think he realizes it. He has been busing crowds, taking people from 400 kilometers to come and attend his rallies. Everywhere he goes, he has got over 50 buses following him with people, uh, which means that the real social base, the support that you expect a president and a party that is over 60 years like ZANU-PF is no longer there. There's no organic support. So if you juxtapose that with the opposition party led by Nelson Chamisa, the Triple C, people are willingly coming to those rallies. Uh, they are not buzzed. They come willingly because they are looking for redemption. They are looking for change. They are living terrible lives. They go to bed on empty stomachs. So it's difficult for them. And that is why they come in huge numbers without being forced to attend opposition rallies. Hopewell, thank you. That was Hopewell Chinono speaking to us from Harare. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. It's not easy to be an opposition party in Zimbabwe. Earlier this week, for example, 40 members of the Citizens' Coalition for Change were arrested at a campaign event in Harare. Well, I'm joined now by Fadzai Mahere, a Zimbabwean lawyer and politician who currently serves as the national spokesperson for the Citizens' Coalition for Change. She is also running in this election as a candidate for parliament. Fadzai, first of all, how confident are you and the CCC that even if you do win in this election, you will actually be allowed to take power? Well, I think this year, more than any other year, the opposition has mounted a formidable challenge to ZANU-PF rule. We launched about a year ago a mass rural penetration drive, and that's been the biggest game changer because in the past, ZANU-PF used to believe that the rural areas were their strongholds. But we've managed to bust that myth and we've been doing a lot of mobilization and campaigning in the rural areas. Added to that, we have invested quite heavily in our defense of the vote and ensuring that there are polling agents in all of the polling stations in all constituencies. We believe that these two factors will result in a win despite the odds. Obviously, ZANU-PF is feeling the heat. That's why we've seen a rise in tensions, political violence, intimidation, harassment, abuse of state institutions, political arrests, weaponization of the law against the opposition. But we believe that if we manage to secure a victory, a formidable win, it will be too big to rig. And we have a number of international observers from SADC and beyond who are currently in the country, whom we've been engaging and updating on a regular basis about the state of play. We've consistently held the electoral management body to account. And so we believe that should we win this year, we will certainly be able to take power. I mean, the constitution is very clear that whoever has the biggest number of votes, 50 plus one, 50% plus one, first past the post, must take power. So there really oughtn't be any negotiation thereafter. 
I want to pick up on that specific point of the CCC campaigning in the rural areas where, you know, voting for ZANU-PF is almost a reflex. It's just what people do. What's your specific pitch been in those parts of Zimbabwe? How do you hope to persuade people away from voting for ZANU-PF? Well, the biggest pitch to them is firstly a voter education one, that your vote is your secret. A lot of the time they vote as ZANU-PF by reflex, as you say, because they are scared that if they do vote for change, they'll be discovered and then there'll be reprisals thereafter. So our biggest message to the rural electorate has been that your vote is your secret. Secondly, you know, Zimbabwe is facing an unprecedented poverty crisis. According to the World Bank, we're facing 49% extreme poverty. And the majority of poor people who are suffering, the vulnerable, are in rural areas. They've been experiencing ZANU-PF rule now for 43 years, a dilapidated infrastructure, dysfunctional public health facilities, schools that no longer function, hunger. And so they're also fed up and ready for change. And so they've been very open to our message that we can deliver a Zimbabwe that works for everyone, not one that only benefits the ZANU-PF elite. And they've been very receptive to this message and our rallies have been well attended. A number of our cell groups, the smaller groups that we've set up in each of the 36,000 villages are well attended. Despite political violence, a lot of these citizens remain defiant. There have been attempts to burn their homes, to beat them up, but they remain resolute and say, look, we have had enough of the suffering and we demand change. When you've made this pitch to people, though, who've been resistant to it, those people who are still going to vote for ZANU-PF despite everything, what's your sense of why they're doing that? Is it just that, as is often the case in what are actually or effectively one-party states, they simply can't imagine anybody else running the country? quite the opposite. They certainly have the imagination and hope uh, for a better Zimbabwe. And I think they have the same aspirations that urban Zimbabweans and Zimbabweans that are outside the country have. They just want a country that works for everyone. And they understand quite rightly that this suffering has been caused uh, mostly by bad governance. And so they're the first to say, look, something is wrong. We want something different. We're sick and tired of these people coming to us as they do every single five years, tell us lies and then disappear for five years only to come back on the eve of elections with a few T-shirts, a few handouts and tell us to vote for them. They're sick and tired of being abused. And a lot of the time that is what they say back to us. They say quite clearly that, look, we are tired of this. We want a country that works for us. We're sick and tired of people driving their big fat cars coming here and leaving us in poverty. Is Zimbabwe one of those places, though, where there is a distinct political culture between the cities and the rural areas? It, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty common in most countries because you're standing for parliament yourself in, in Mount Pleasant in Harare. Is it different campaigning there when you're out knocking on doors in what you hope will be your own constituency? Well, it, there used to be a huge difference. There used to be a huge demarcation. And in the past, the opposition was really strong in urban areas and virtually non-existent in the rural areas. But now our campaign tactics have sort of converged, as it were. We're all doing door-to-door campaigns. We're all using flyers because state media is manipulated and, and tries to shut the opposition out. We are 
all doing rallies. So both urban areas and rural communities, we're having our rallies, our mobilization meetings. We're also in rural areas. I think the big distinction is that we say to the rural populace, you can go to ZANU-PF meetings, you can wear their t-shirts, you can take whatever handouts, but just know what you're doing on voting day. And we've called this the mango strategy where, you know, you can pretend you're green on the outside, but be yellow on the inside. And I think that's the only distinction between how we're campaigning in rural communities as opposed to urban ones. But otherwise, the door-to-door campaigning that we're doing in our urban communities, such as Mount Pleasant, we're going street by street, whereas in the rural areas, they're going village by village. But the idea is to still reach as many constituents as we can directly. Just finally then, if your mango strategy works and you have won over enough former ZANU-PF voters that the CCC has won this election, but as is not impossible, ZANU-PF denies that this has happened or tries to fudge the result or says something wasn't right, what do you do if you win this election but the other bunch won't agree that they lost? So the key message that we've given all citizens of Zimbabwe is that the will of the people must be respected and every citizen is the primary observer and defender of the voters, as it were. And so we've mobilized to ensure that there's legal, political, diplomatic pressure to ensure that the right thing is done. Nowhere in the world does it happen that a party wins but is denied the takeover of power. There is an obligation, especially amongst regional bodies, including SADC and the AU, to ensure that the will of the people is respected and the constitution of Zimbabwe is upheld. It would be a threat to international peace, regional peace and security, if anything but that was done. Fadzai Mahere, thank you very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. A name that will not be on the presidential ballot next week is that of Robert Chapman. The leader of the Democratic Union of Zimbabwe withdrew from the race in June. He joins me now. Robert, first of all, what were you hoping to accomplish by standing as an opposition candidate? My goal in running is to change the country domestically and its international policy from where Zimbabwe is and where it needs to go is a very simple process, but we have the wrong people sitting in the wrong seats on the wrong bus. So the goal was to come in, talk about things that really mattered. A lot of the politics that you see today and that of the past are really based on activism-based politics, but not really policy. No one was really talking about things that really mattered or changed the lives of people on the ground. So we focused on three things, prosperity, justice, and modernization. Of course, running is the goal is to win, The second part was to change the conversation about the way we look at our country and the way we talk about our politics. Unfortunately, I wasn't very successful in doing that in this election, but we'll see what happens in the next five years. Did you not think that any of this was or is on offer from the CCC and their candidate, Nelson Chamisa? No, it wasn't. Uh, We brought that conversation to the table. And let me say this, anyone that runs against uh, ZANU-PF as an opposition leader I have a tremendous amount of respect for them because it is a daunting task. And so I have a tremendous amount of respect for Nelson Chimisa and his team for going there. But one of the things that they didn't do very well was articulating the message and what it meant for Zimbabwe and what would galvanize people to stand in line and cast their vote. Registering to vote was a big one, particularly among the youth. It was very activism-based politics, basically pointing and placing blame and not really talking about what your government was going to do once it got in. That message changed when we came about and some other parties came and were pushing this agenda 
And a lot of those candidates had lived outside of Zimbabwe. So they had a different perspective of what that would look like in Zimbabwe and how to really galvanize and move things forward. Do you think, I guess now looking at this contest as something of an outsider, that there is any hope of anybody but ZANU-PF winning this, or at least ZANU-PF still being in power out the other side of the election? Yes, it's a sad reality to really be faced with, you know, one of the things during the campaign going, you know, city to city, community to community, farm to farm. What you see essentially say on social media or Twitter does not reflect the ground. It doesn't. I think Twitter is the only place where there's so much dialogue about the Zimbabwe election. But on the ground, the people are exhausted from the political conversation that never seems to end in the country. So what the advantage that leaves is for ZANU-PF. And then the state machinery that they have from organizations like FUZ, which was sort of a nonprofit dressed up as a military organization that sort of had levels of intimidation when you went to register to vote or verify that you needed to vote, they will be at the polling station or at the uh, Zimbabwe Electoral Commission post where you'd almost have to verify with them as well. So using state machinery, using the amount of funding and finance that they had, the opposition was so far behind. I say opposition meaning all of us, so far behind uh, the eight ball. In my withdrawal letter, that was something that I, I really alluded to, which I pushed for in the beginning is we need three strong parties going into this election, very strong parties. Either we need an alliance, a union, which in this election, unlike 2018, where many people are comparing 2018, there is not a single alliance in this election in opposition. Everyone is running their own stream. Why was it you decided eventually to bow out of the race? It was a very difficult choice, to be honest, but the answers were right in front of me. It was very, very emotionally uh, difficult for me to make that decision. It was a very lonely moment and you know, feel like I really let my team down and, and many of the followers. And I felt that after. The biggest challenge was finance, the financial hurdles of running a political campaign in a country where people don't really believe that change is possible is very, very difficult. And my wife and I had taken on that burden very heavily. And we'd got to a point where without the support of donors and so without the regional support and even the support of an alliance inside opposition, it was going to be very difficult for us to come into the last 60 days and the remaining 60 days to ensure that we could get the win that we needed. The second part was because of the financial constraints that were faced both politically and personally, one of the things that we looked at was, was there an upside for us to turn the tide where it came to voter protection, being able to continually campaign and run uh, mass rallies, being able to provide uh, support and and material for our candidates across the country. And the answer to that, the answer was, even if we had put so much money in the remaining 60 days, the tables were really turned against us. So we said, let's let's uh, focus on getting our candidates at the House of Assembly, focus on our local council candidates that had gone through the nomination process, and let's help them become successful in getting in. And then we regroup for 2028 and make sure that we have our ducks more in a row. And it's a question that I think is doubtless praise on the mind of people in opposition politics in Zimbabwe, but was the risk to your own safety, that of your team, those of your support, that of your supporters, any concern as well? 100%. Uh, we, we faced huge, huge problems in our travels. In the middle of the night, in one case, I think we were in Mashingo, we had a security secret police show up and wanted to talk to me. Of course, we refused and I went out a back door and left at high speed in our vehicles. What we also found from the security was also internal. We faced uh, folks that were bringing in people into the organization that we later found out were part of the security network, you know, the, the secret intelligence. That is a real, real issue when it comes to security for opposition members and their supporters. We had some elderly uh, supporters, some women 
down in southern Matabel and south that were very advocating for uh, my presidency. And they were threatened two days later because that video went viral on Facebook and someone noticed who they were and they went to their home and said, you cannot make videos like that. So these things are very, very real in the country. And that's where some of those costs came in and make the decision. Could we support ourselves while trying to campaign, running mass uh, mass rallies and galvanizing, traveling the country? You know, I'm traveling with multiple vehicles, multiple personnel. Could we keep the expense for 60 days while trying to also field candidates? And the answer is no. The nomination fee for our candidates was over $150,000, just the fee to run. And we realized that that's something that we, we could no longer afford to come through as our donors uh, sort of you know fell by the wayside and some didn't even come to support at all. And that's something that we want to look at very closely as we come out of this election going towards the next one is what electoral reforms we put in place for transparency around uh, donor funds. There needs to be real transparency, including the ZANU-PF government. There are people that benefit from the way things are today in Zimbabwe. We want to be able to know how the party is getting its funding and where it's coming from, the same way it would for opposition members as well. You mentioned earlier or referred earlier to the the youthful nature of Zimbabwe's population, which is quite common across Africa, but it is definitely a thing in Zimbabwe. I think nearly 70% of Zimbabweans are under 35. Is your worry that if Manangagwa is either re-elected or at least stays on in power, that this is another generation that is lost, that this is more time that is wasted. I guess there's an opportunity in the state that Zimbabwe is now in. It could be rebuilt from the ground up. But are you concerned that a a point of no return may be looming? I wouldn't say a point of no return. The youth certainly face a great challenge. So this is something that even for engagement with us that we faced on the ground, a lot of the youth are waiting to exit the country. The patience has run out. So they're not even engaged in the political dialogue at the levels that we would really want them to and really would be beneficial to bring around uh, change in the country. I wouldn't say they've lost hope, but they're really looking for an angle. Basically, if I can get a scholarship or a visa to leave the country, I'm leaving. The only way that I think that we can really catch and uh, harness the minds and hearts of the youth over the next five years is to be active in a way that is prosperous and positive in our message, that is not based on activism-based politics, which is always complaining or blaming someone else. Because the moment we do that, we take power away from ourselves. I will say this, they are aware of the challenges that take place in their community. Because of access to information, they don't have to wait on state media anymore. Social media tells them that, you know, whether it's social media or social news, that comes out tells them how far behind they are. And what this does, it allows them to start questioning local leaders. This particular election should be more focused on local council and members of parliament. The quality of candidates that are going into parliament and going to local council above the presidential candidate. Zimbabwe is only focused on one position, which is at the top. We kept pushing and saying, no, you need to start questioning your local councilman because that's where local development and that's where local devolution funds are affiliated to your community. So if things are not functioning in your community, it's your local councilman. And in some cases, even particularly where there was opposition, we would go through and look at the expenditure of budget and you would see such situations like my hometown in Chinoy, which is in opposition for 20 years, not a single project of development has been done. But you find out that they bought 10 laptops for $26,000. So when you're having this conversation with the youth and you're saying we're going to be better as the opposition in this country, but we've been managing this city for the last 20 years with no development. 
sewage running through the streets, why would they be engaged in politics? So we have to be different in these next five years if we're going to capture the hearts and minds of the youth. Robert Chapman, thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. And finally, on today's show, I'm joined here in the studio by Monocle's very own Georgina Godwin. Georgina, first of all, your voice will, of course, be familiar to Monocle Radio listeners, but your backstory perhaps less so. You are Zimbabwean, but it has been a long time since you were able to visit. Yes, I left on the 30th of October 2001, and that was because I was a radio presenter for the state broadcaster, the Zimbabwe Broadcasting Corporation, and we took a challenge to the Supreme Court saying that it was unconstitutional for the state to have a broadcast monopoly. Unthinkably, almost, we won, which meant that I resigned on air that morning and that evening was crawling around on the top of a tall building setting up an aerial and Zimbabwe's first independent radio station. It kept going for a week and and then it was shut down by presidential decree. The president at the time was Mugabe and the sort of guns and boots of the police. And we all sort of scattered, obviously. And from then on, I came here. We established the station on shortwave, me and a team of people, not just me on my own. And we broadcast into Zimbabwe. So that would consist of us phoning people and recording their story and then playing it out so that people down the road could understand what was happening. And that became particularly relevant during elections because because there were were elections almost immediately after we left. And so we were telling people who were being turned away from polling stations, it's okay. there's one 10 minutes down the road, go to that one. And it was like playing catch up, you know. But then also interviewing so many people to whom such terrible things had happened. The level of violence was almost incomprehensible. What is your current status now with Zimbabwe as you understand it? Are you simply not able to go back? Have you been formally told that or do you just assume that that's the case? I think it was in 2003 uh, I was officially made an enemy of the state. Now, I may have gone back there, perhaps on a different passport in the interim, but it's not something that I would do again. I feel that the transfer of power from Mugabe to Mnangagwa, I wouldn't say that Mugabe and I had any kind of relationship. We were aware of each other and there was some kind of almost gentleman's honour, I'd say, about him. I think we must never forget that Munangagwa is a former spy chief. He mm-hmm. was in charge of the killings in Matabililand, the genocide in Matabililand, and I absolutely would not go to any place at all where one felt that he had any kind of control over one's destiny. So what's it like for you now watching yet another Zimbabwean election and there should probably be inverted commas around election to an extent taking place? I feel absolutely humbled and I bow my head in astonishment and admiration for the people who are campaigning and who are going out there day after day, who keep on fighting, who keep on saying we can win this, who keep on trying to do things by the book, by the constitution, have legal cases and all the rest of it. Because I think that for many, many Zimbabweans, the country is so poverty stricken. People are in such a dire strait. People just want to get on with their lives. They're just trying to survive. And for anybody who's really pushing for an election win, good on them. I'm sorry, but I don't feel it's ever going to happen. I fear I have now lost hope, having been on this cycle time and time again and thinking this time we can do it. Surely they can't steal it again. And I think that I'm not alone by hoping that this time 
all we manage to do is avoid a huge amount of violence. We know the result. We just hope nobody gets hurt on the way. Is there more that could or should be done by Zimbabwe's, well, partners seems the wrong word, overseas, but especially a country like the one we are broadcasting from, which, of course, has an intimate, let's call it intimate, historical connection with the country? Well, Britain, of course, Zimbabwe's former or Rhodesia's former colonial master. I think this country has behaved reprehensibly the entire way through. And just recently, Munangagwa, Zimbabwe's president, was invited to the king's coronation. I got in touch with uh, the Foreign Office, I got in touch with the Palace, and I got in touch with the Archbishop of Canterbury and asked them all why this was the case, given that Zimbabwe Defence Industries is a state-owned company run by the state, and that's on the list of targeted sanctions. Therefore, Munangagwa should not have been allowed in this country. So what's happening is that Britain is trying to establish a relationship. Munangagwa, I think, is keen to come back into the Commonwealth. It's all going to sort of be massaged in a way, I think, that eventually all will be forgiven and forgotten, a little bit like what you see is happening with, with MBS from Saudi Arabia. And this is just such a blow, such disrespect for the Zimbabwean people, people who have fought so hard for their independence, people who have really, really given everything they have for the struggle to be let down by Western powers who could help, who could be doing things, who could be putting more pressure on the country. And that's just not happening. I want to close by getting across some sense of of what those people striving for change in Zimbabwe are hoping for, because Zimbabwe is one of those countries that always gets talked about when people talk about the countries where you just think it doesn't have to be like this, a bit like Russia or Iran. This is a country which is stopped only by the people from governing it, from being a prosperous, peaceful, orderly and entirely agreeable nation. Look, there's one major problem with Zimbabwe, which is that it's a kleptocracy and those in power have been and will and are stealing from the people. And if that money was not going into private pockets, it would be going out to help people in in the country. We used to be the best educated population in Africa. We used to feed Africa. Now people can't afford to go to school anymore. People live subsistence existences. They sell little things on the side of the road. They plough pitiful pieces of land. Listen, I don't want to do my country down. Some people are doing extremely well. I'm talking about those who have nothing and there are far too many of them. There are some wonderful, wonderful entrepreneurs there and business people who are stopped time and time again from reaching their full potential because the government is stealing absolutely everything. And they're also doing that through their central bank and through the way that they deal with currency, how people who have US dollars suddenly find that their Zimbabwe dollars are are worthless and so on. Can I just give my own experience? And honestly, I believe I am so, so privileged and I never, ever forget that. My parents owned a four-bedroom house on a two-acre plot of land with a swimming pool. And my mother got £300 for that house. And whilst I recognise that having 300 quid and having had the enormous privilege of growing up in a home like that, that is how hyperinflation works. And honestly, we are one of the lucky ones. So many people have been done down so much worse than that. And, you know, if people want to know more about this, my brother, Peter Godwin, who's also a journalist, has written some really fantastic books about Zimbabwe and Makiwa, a white boy in Africa, but particularly about our story, which is called When a Crocodile Eats the Sun, and his latest one, The Fear. And that really does tell you everything about what happened during Zimbabwe's last big election when the results were postponed for seven weeks. I'm really hoping that doesn't happen this time.
Georgina Godwin, many thanks for joining us here on the Foreign Desk and a reminder that Peter Godwin's books about Zimbabwe are very much available. That is it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.